If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 20. Psalm 20, thank you for that song, especially that last phrase, not just to serve, but to love thee with all of my heart. It's easy sometimes to just serve. And so what do we learn? Psalm chapter 20. So August of this coming year, in 2020, is the Summer Olympics. And uh, in my house, we like the Olympics. Uh, women's gymnastics is must-see TV in the Hickson household. There's a lot of women in my house. So Simone Biles and, uh, you know, we really enjoy it. Uh, I don't know if you guys like the Olympics or not, but one of my favorite parts of the Olympics is uh, the medal ceremonies. And the medal ceremonies when someone wins a gold medal and they play the national anthem of that person, that winner's country. And more often than not, when they show the medal ceremony, they show the winners there, and they show the flags going up, and the national anthem is playing, and they zoom in on that person's face. And you know, if it's a person who's won lots of gold medals, you know, it's not as emotional. But when it's that person's first gold medal, you know, and you see the emotion, and you see the joy, and you see the sometimes humility, and, and all of just the overwhelming nature of that moment, you know, they are representing their country. Um, here in the United States, obviously, we, we have our own national anthem. If you lived in England or you are from England uh, or one of Great Britain, uh, one of the uh, Great Britain Commonwealths, you would have a different national anthem. In fact, it's called God Save the Queen. And depending on who the monarch is, it could be God Save the King, if there's the king, but it's right now God Save the Queen. Do you know where that phrase, God Save the King, comes from? It actually comes from the chapter that we're going to be reading today, God Save the the king. In fact, uh, in verse 9 of this chapter, depending on your translation, it may say that word for word. In the original language, in Hebrew, it is what it says. God save the, uh, God save the king. That phrase, God save the king, written by David, sung by Israel in worship, because the Psalms are Israel's songbook, has a very national and I would even say a very patriotic feel to it. And this is a, I guess we could say this is a pretty national patriotic psalm that we're going to be reading and studying today. Yet David never wanted the focus of worship to be on himself or his nation. He wanted focus to be on worshiping God and in particular trusting in him completely. So as we read Psalm 20, today, as we look at Psalm 20, as we study, what I want to leave with you is this. You must know that God will always be trustworthy, and that you must trust him supremely. God is always trustworthy, and you must trust him supremely. Before we go any further, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you even for this psalm that uh, its message is pretty clear. Its message is not something that may be necessarily new, but it certainly is relevant. And so, God, I pray that as we listen, that we might hear, that we might um, change to become more like your son. And, God, that our focus and our attention would be not on circumstances, but rather on you who is in control of everything. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read this psalm together. I'll read it, and you follow along. It's only nine verses. And uh, you, you follow along. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. 
May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, or like I said before, God save the king. May the king answer us in the day we call. Now, what is this chapter about? Just want to give you a, a, an introduction as we jump right in. Israel, national Israel, is about to go to battle. You see that language in the first five verses. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. As Ben actually said, uh, describing the, the choir anthem, David and consequently his kingdom was constantly under assault. And so they nation of Israel is about to go to battle against the enemies of Israel, those who would come, those who would seek to overthrow. And so this psalm would have been sung in a worship service, or perhaps a special service, just before the king and Israel went out to battle. And so to ensure God's guidance, that they were actually following God's will, God's favor and his blessing before the battle, the king and the nation would have gathered for worship. Now, as you read verses 1 through 5, you have to understand that it's the nation of Israel praying for their king. Okay, so verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. You see this word you in the first five verses? The you there is the king. Okay, so just as a side note, if you go into your local Christian bookstore and they have a plaque with verses 1 through 5, don't buy it and put it in your house unless you are planning on overtaking some nation as a king of Israel, okay? So I, the reason why I say that is because we read verses, verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We'll sing joy over your victory, and we can easily take that and kind of superimpose it on life circumstances. That's not what it's talking about, okay? What's being talked about is a battle that's about to take place. And what's, talk, what's going on is that the nation of Israel is praying for their king. Now, the king is actually writing the psalm. David. For the choir director, it says, a psalm of David. Once we get to verse 6, however, we see the attention shift to the king himself, who understands his role as the anointed one by God. Verse 6, now I know the Lord saves his anointed. And that, like I said, this is King David writing really about not just himself, but the anointed one, the king of Israel. He recognizes that honoring God is the focal point, and that the king is the servant and representative of the Lord. Notice again, verse 6, God will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his, God's right hand. Verse 7, we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Verse 9, save, O Lord. There's a dependence on God undergirding the king. And as we look at David's life, we see a history of him honoring the position of the anointed one even before he became the anointed one, or as he was about to become the king. 
We don't have time, but if you were to look back in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 1 Samuel chapter 26, David had the opportunity of taking the life of Saul. You say, well, that sounds bad. Well, considering that Saul, on many occasions, was trying to take the life of David. And David had been anointed by Samuel to be king. And Saul was living a selfish kingship, as it were. That's putting it mildly. And David, having the opportunity as a warrior to take this king's life and to take the throne that he had already been anointed, yet what did David say? It is not right for me to lay my hands on the Lord's anointed. In military, I believe they use this phrase, sometimes it's difficult to respect the man, but you respect the position, right? This is David respecting the position, not just because he was in it, but because this was a position anointed by the Lord. And he understands that having the role of the anointed one, the king, is the defeat of evil. So we don't have time, but Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 actually go together. So if you were to read Psalm 21, you would read of David and the nation celebrating the victory. So in, in chapter 20, they're praying as they go out. Chapter 21, they're thanking God as they come home. Thank you, Lord, for the, the victory, for delivering our enemies into our hands, for protecting, for preserving. Now, I'm guessing, and I, I, I need to say this before I go any further. I'm guessing that there may be times where in this sermon, and in particular the application may be uncomfortable. Okay? That's not a bad thing, being uncomfortable, especially when the Holy Spirit, and I trust that the Holy Spirit is the source of causing us to change. I certainly don't want it to be just me. I want to be faithful to the text, but as I said before, the context of Psalm 20 is national. The primary and secondary applications of this text are strong, and I pray that those applications would be appropriate as we see ourselves looking at this particular psalm. So, I have two main points. The first point is this. You must put your trust in the Lord and not in a strong country. You must put your trust in the Lord and not in a strong country. Why do I say that? Well, King David did not put his trust in a strong Israel. He put his trust in a strong God. Now, the two worked hand in hand to be sure. In understanding the context of this chapter, we are talking about Old Testament Israel. We are talking about national Israel. A country that God had made covenants with. But as we look at this text, we're not just simply seeing success for Israel as the end-all be-all and success for King David himself as the end-all be-all. What we see is a dependence upon God and a trust in him. So in verses 1 through 5, we see that God's people understood that God was behind their security and success. God was behind it. Notice again in verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary. Verse 3, May he remember all of your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. May he, may God grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. 
David wanted to bless the efforts of the king and country. I'm sorry, David wanted God to bless the efforts of king and country as long as king and country were obeying the Lord. In verses 1, 5, and 7, we see a similar phrase used, and it's really important to understanding the context of this, this chapter. We see this phrase, in the name of the Lord, may the name of God of Jacob set you securely. Verse 5, in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Verse 7, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. The name of the Lord our God. Not only does this theme run through this chapter, but it's a theme that runs through the Bible. I mean, think of it. One of the Ten Commandments. Don't take the name of our God in vain. Right? When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey, the week before he was about to be crucified, the people yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We also see Paul evangelizing in the name of the Lord. We see people being baptized in the name of the Lord, right? Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We see people praying in the name of the Lord. In fact, when you pray, you may end your prayers something to the effect of, in Jesus' name, amen. Everything we do, according to Colossians chapter 3, we ought to do in the name of our Lord. Why is that significant? Because it is this is the, what undergirds our strength and our trust. Who we are is grounded upon God. And in this context, David is saying, as we move forward as a kingdom, as we move forward and as God has called us to, uh, to go out and to defeat these enemies, we're not going to trust in what all of the other nations trust in. We're going to trust in the name of the Lord. And so we see David not trusting in a strong kingdom. And really, this is the immediate context, and I would say the most appropriate application of this text. And we see it most, see it most clearly in verse 7. Some boast in chariots, some in horses. Why is that significant? Well, chariots and horses, chariots and horses represented at this time the strength of the particular country, the strength of their military. This is what Egypt did. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God tells Israel, don't go down into Egypt. Don't accumulate horses. Don't pursue their course of action, which is depending on their military might, depending on the strength. In fact, David was told do not even number your armies. Don't number the horses. Don't pursue that. Why? Because the natural tendency is to put your faith in what you can count as opposed to the God who you cannot see but you must trust. Amen. That's the human tendency. We'll talk a little bit more about this, just how this plays out in our lives. But this is the tendency. And unfortunately, as we see National Israel progressed throughout the Old Testament. We see Israel doing just this. In Isaiah chapter 31, what do they do? They go, they try to accumulate more military might. Is there wrong with having a strong military? No, but what God was trying to do for the nation of Israel was have them have him as their strength. So by extension, 
for you and me. We should not put our supreme trust in a strong military defense for our country. Doesn't mean we can't trust it. Doesn't mean we can't be thankful for it. And in fact, the things I'm about to recite, I don't want you to hear a lack of gratitude on my part. I am immensely thankful for everything I'm about to mention here. And I, I hope that we all are. But I also hope that this isn't what we're putting our supreme faith and trust in. We're not to put our trust in a strong military defense. We're not to put our trust in a, in a stockpiled advanced weapon system. We're not to put our trust, our supreme trust, in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. We're not to put our trust in a border wall. We're not to put our trust in the Second Amendment. Or if you're a woman, the 19th Amendment. Or if you're a minority, a fifth, the 15th Amendment. Or any amendment for that matter. We're not called to put our supreme trust in a political party, the outcome of an election, pro-life legislation, judges and legislators that uphold and represent Christian values, affordable or even universal health care, tax cuts, or in our context, tax exemption. Are we thankful? Yes. I look at my own family. I had a grandfather who served in the Pacific Theater who was MIA for six weeks almost lost his life serving our country. I look at my father, who also served our country. I have a brother who's a nurse practitioner for the VA, administers medical care on a daily basis to our veterans. Right? Taking my kids to DC, we tour the monuments, we talk about what our country is. I'm thankful for what I enjoy. I have been born with a national silver spoon in my mouth. And I'm thankful for that. So please, do not hear the promotion of trust in God as a demotion of what God has blessed us with. Does that make sense? But as Christians, especially when we look at global Christianity, how many Christians enjoy what I just recited? How many of them have never experienced some of the things that we've just listed off? What should they trust in? The same thing we should trust in. It would do us well to learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ who live across the globe and how they demonstrate their trust in the Lord when they don't have the chariots and horses. So we must trust, first of all, in our Lord and not a strong country. But second of all, we must trust in God supremely above all other things. We must trust in God supremely above all other things. Look at verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Victory is promised to God's anointed one. It's interesting here in the grammar of uh, the, the, the original uh, grammar of this text, the immediate context, the grammar shows that Israel was confident of the victory that God had already given them, even though the battle hadn't been fought yet. And I alluded to, to chapter 21, where they're singing praise to God for the victory that he had given. The grammar, even in chapter 20, was presuming God was going to give them victory. This chapter 
is not placing our supreme trust in the leader of our country or the leader or, or any particular leader. Notice how in verse 6 it says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. The king here, David, he's the one addressed in verse 9, God save the king. This is the king of Israel. And I go back again to the original language, and I'm terrible at pronouncing Hebrew, especially in a public context, so bear with me. But this word for anointed one is the Hebrew word Mishaiach, or Mishaiach, where we get our word Messiah. Now, looking at this chapter with New Testament lenses, when we see or hear the word Messiah, who comes to mind? Jesus. In fact, the Greek version of this, the Septuagint, this is what people in Jesus' day who didn't know Hebrew, how would they read their Old Testament? Well, they'd read it in Greek, and it was translated in what you would call the Septuagint. The Greek word for this term is Christon, where we get the word Christ. Now, that's not to say that David is thinking about Jesus of Nazareth per se, but he's pointing to an anointed one who, if through the line of David, would come and save. And so, as we look at this passage, we see the king, the king of Israel, God's anointed one, who has been promised to save. The king also, verses 3 through 5 here, going back to national Israel, the king is personally involved in the act of worship. And this worship was more than just a formality. He was abiding by the Mosaic Code and offering worship. Now, I have this in my notes, and I don't want it to be an aside that distracts, but I do want to bring it to our attention, especially knowing our congregation. There's a phrase used in this chapter that can be really distracting, and you may have personal context with it, and it really is this phrase, the anointed one. Some of you may come from a church background that you've heard the phrase, touch not the Lord's anointed, and you've heard it in the context of a pastor, touch not the Lord's anointed. And sometimes that's been used to the abuse of the church. Can I tell you, this phrase, the Lord's anointed, it's taken from the Old Testament, and it's used in reference here, particularly by David, by others, referring to God-appointed leaders of the nation of Israel, in particular kings and prophets. The context, touch not the Lord's anointed, or the Lord's anointed, is not in reference to the local church. I am not the Lord's anointed other than if you read John, 1 John 2, where it says we all have an anointing. In other words, we're all saved. You see, what the church is comprised of is believer priests. If you are in Christ, you are a priest. There isn't this set of, of, of anointed ones that are untouchable. If anything, like I said, you all have an anointing, that you're like Christ. You've been made believer priest. You all have a priest-like anointed one value to the church, but none of you, including any pastor, is the anointed one. There are different roles, to be sure, but there is no one that is untouchable, especially the guy behind this box. It's your role and our role to live Christ-like together. Again, that's an aside, but for some, when you see that phrase, the anointed one, there might be these like PTSD flashbacks of people who use that phrase to basically do what they want, fleece the flock. And that is not what this is about, certainly. But back to the Lord's anointed in Psalm 20. David, writing about himself, 
could very easily have made himself the object of their trust. Right? Verse 6, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. David's writing about the king. He's the king. He was, after all, the Lord's anointed. In military matters, he was second to none. The king that was about to lead them out to the battle, he, he had a pretty good military resume. Goliath, kind of a big one, right? One-on-one, -on -one, mano a mano. Saul had slain his thousands. David had slain his ten thousands. Remember that little song that they were singing? David had the reputation. David was a powerful leader. David wasn't making this about himself. He had the people, Israel, singing praise, but singing praise to God. And in verse 7, he says, now I, I know, I'm sorry, verse 6, he says, now I know the Lord saves his anointed. And he says, Lord, God, save the king. You know, in this context of us in particular, and we see David's example, drawing the people's attention to trusting in God supremely and not even himself, when we think that we might trust things that aren't God, we could easily forget that it's possible, it's possible to make even ourselves the object of someone's trust above God. Like, I, I can actually put myself in a position to where I want someone to trust me more than I trust God. And the two shouldn't conflict. But think of it this way. Husbands and wives, are you making yourself the person, that person, to your spouse? Parents, are you making yourself that person to your children? You cannot be your spouse's everything. You can't. You cannot be your children's everything. That's not the way that God has designed the local church. That's not the way that God has designed a family. You cannot meet all of their emotional, social, spiritual needs as a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, a teacher, a discipler. God has not designed the body of Christ to function this way. So, just as way, by way of illustration, in the past few years, I've had the opportunity of doing a number of weddings. I love doing weddings. They're wonderful times. They're, you know, they're days you remember for the rest of your life. And in doing a lot of weddings, you know, we, we have different processes and, and what goes on. And every so often, a couple will want to write their own vows. And um, writing vows is a very personal thing. It's, it's you know, by God, uh, hopefully... You know, there's, there's a lot of thought put into them. Um, I do, though, when, when we have weddings and we have vows written, I, I do make a request, and that is, I, I would really like to look at the vows before you give them. And, and, you know, part of it is, you know, the fear that there's going to be three paragraphs from the bride and about three sentences from the groom. So you do want some balance there. But more importantly, my heart is so that the bride and the groom don't make vows that they can't keep. And here's what I mean. You are the light of my world. Okay? I don't doubt that that's maybe stated in sincerity. But Jesus is the light of the world. Amen. My spouse cannot be the light of the world. The light of my world. You complete me. No. <laughs> Listen, as I'm writing this in my notes, I actually didn't think it was going to be funny, but you guys are laughing, so... <laughs> I was like, this is kind of serious. Um, I read in Colossians 2, you are completing him in Christ. You are the world to me. You are my life. No, you're not. I love my spouse. And if you're looking for a spouse to be those things, you're going to be sorely disappointed. 
And if you're expecting your spouse to be those things, or if you're trying to be those things to your spouse, you will either disappoint or be greatly disappointed. And in fact, you're out of order because you're usurping a position that only Christ can fill. Even David, the anointed one, failed miserably. But as we look forward, we see King Jesus, the anointed one, in the line of David who will never fail, who we can trust completely. And as we read this passage, keeping in mind what we know from the New Testament, we can't help but see the clear pointing forward to the one who secures our victory over sin and death and who will ultimately come as king, literally defeat the enemies of God and establish his kingdom forever. That's what we put our supreme trust in. That is who we put our supreme trust in. But as I close, I do feel it is necessary to make a secondary point of application. And that is, as we look at verse 7, we see that phrase, it's a verse that many of us know, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. I think it's appropriate to address the things that we tend to put our trust in above God. From a personal standpoint, not a national standpoint so much, but a personal standpoint. These are the chariots and horses that our world boasts of, that they put their trust in. We should not, we must not put our supreme trust in immediate forms of security. What do I mean by that? Well, a solid paying job, our needs and wants supplied, money in the bank, a good marriage, a stable home, stable relationships, having good health, having control. And when I say having control, having things go according to plan. Maybe even getting answers to the struggles that we do have. There are times when God gives us moments in clarity, moments of clarity in our lives, when we really learn what we are trusting in. And normal, at least I found in my life, my trust is most tested when God removes or withholds the things that are alternatives to trusting in him. So when those things are removed from me, the things I just listed, needs and wants supplied perhaps, money in the bank, stable home, stable marriage, good health, having things go the way I plan, when those things are removed from me, or perhaps when others have those things that I want, and if I think, well, if I just had those things, things would be so much better. If I could just be able to massage this, then I'll be okay. When in fact, when I don't have those things, things aren't okay. Do you ever play that game Jenga? You know what Jenga is? You know, the towers of those little blocks? We actually have here at our church picture, we have something called giant Jenga. It's these huge boxes. And we stack them up. They're crazy tall. And then you, know, you poke out. You know what Jenga is? You poke out the little pieces of wood. And the tower still stands, but it kind of teeters a little bit. And the object is to try to poke out as many. And hopefully the other person who's poking out the little pegs, the tower falls on them. You know, or falls because of them. In a certain way, for those who are in Christ, God can tend to poke out the little things 
that underlie our security, if for no other reason than to make it clear, abundantly clear to us, what our trust ultimately should be in. The unfortunate thing, and I mentioned this before, and this is a pattern throughout the Bible, but it's also many times a pattern in our own lives. The unfortunate thing is that when we enjoy the blessings from God, we, trend, we tend to trust in the blessings of God more than God himself. So I'm thinking about national Israel. At the time of David writing this, did they have chariots and horses? You bet they did. Did they have a competent leader? You bet they did. They had a leader who feared God. He was described as a man after God's own heart. And as the anointed one, the people were to trust in him. But there would come times when those things weren't offered to Israel. Or they weren't available because Israel didn't want them. Namely, the man who feared God. But as we look at our lives, we see this pattern of blessing. Instead of making us more grateful and more dependent, it makes us more self-sufficient and more self-secure. You know, when Israel entered into the promised land in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God warns them. I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy, Joshua. God warns, warns them, when you go in here and you enjoy all of this, don't forget me. And it's like, how could you forget God in that moment? When you've been wandering through a desert for 40 years, when, you, when your, your predecessors walked through the Red Sea, when they were in slavery for hundreds of years, you've just been delivered and now you're living in the land of plenty. But what did they do? They became what we would call syncretistic. They added pagan gods to their god. And so you have this weird cycle. It's this cycle of prosperity. Israel enjoyed prosperity. And then they started to become like the world around them. They, especially within idolatry, idolatry and all the practices that are associated with idolatry. And then God saw fit to judge his people for their sin. It was spiritual adultery. And in their being judged, they cry out to God, please deliver us. They become dependent on God because now they're being enslaved, now they're being uh, persecuted. They cry out to God. God delivers them through a judge, hence the book of Judges. Someone who will come and deliver them. And then they enjoy the blessing of the Lord. And then the cycle happens again. And we see that in our lives, too. We enjoy blessing. We enjoy prosperity. We enjoy comfort, health. And it's so easy to become enamored with that and preserving that that it becomes our idol. And we can't live without it, and we realize what we are when we don't have it. And how unstable and how that Jenga tower of life wobbles and wobbles when one little peg is removed. And if we don't correct things, we see God's discipline. And we see it to where God is correcting us, and we call out, God, please, forgive me. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? And we enjoy forgiveness, and we enjoy the blessing, and we enjoy God's people, and we enjoy all of the things that come with walking rightly with God. And then we have that stupid cycle again. 
right? It's interesting. And I don't say this with a critical spirit. I've heard many people pray for God to help or to provide because of a loss of a job. Many times in prayer breakfasts or prayer chains or whatever, and praying, God, please provide, or the loss of health, or, or something that, that God has seen fit to take away, and please pray. And so we, we eagerly pray and we earnestly pray. Maybe we should pray more when things go good. We don't often have prayer chain requests. And again, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying this is just kind of life, as it were. Few of us ask for prayer when we get the raise. When we stay healthy. When we're strong, when our kids make the honor roll, when they get a job out of college. But maybe that's when we should be the most vigilant about where we are putting our trust. You know, I'm, I'm seeing Pastor Kent sing with his sons. A passion for thee. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. You know? But there is the perseverance of the saints. And I know all four people involved in that song, and they've demonstrated fruits of repentance. And I trust that God is going to have Gloria, Pastor Kent, uh, uh, Nate, and Seth walk with the Lord faithfully. But does the Jenga Tower of Life topple if one of them bails? Does it topple when one of my loved ones decides they're not going to walk after the Lord? What am I trusting in? A nice, safe, comfortable, spiritually sound family? Because there are things I cannot control. I can pray and I can ask and I can beg and I can enjoy the blessing. But there is a fine line between being thankful for God's blessing and placing our trust in that blessing. And we have to be careful to walk that line to where we are not placing our supreme trust in God's blessing. And making that the idol. As I close, I asked permission um, for Ben to use uh, to, to share this because Ben has been a blessing. Ben Richard, our choir director, Ben has been a blessing to me, and I've learned much from him and his family. So when we're talking about things that we can and cannot control, in two months, most likely Ben's job is going to be dependent on a tax levy that passes or fails. And we're praying for him. And as I'm sitting across the table from him a couple weeks ago, I'm hearing a guy who's rehearsing everything he believes about God and everything he knows to be true, but still wrestling with, I want a job. And as I'm hearing him, I'm seeing a man who, by God's grace and to God's glory, tried to lead his family and us as Christians in a way to where his trust is not in the passing of the levy, but his trust is in the God who has seen all of this from the beginning. Amen. And in fact, if I can put it this way, if you see Ben in the lobby, and your first thought comes, man, I hope that tax levy passes, then I think you've missed the point of the illustration. Because the point isn't, we hope the tax levy passes. We do. For his job's sake, we want that, I should say. We want him to have a job, that's what I mean. But we're not saying that that's what our hope rests in. Our hope rests in, his hope rests in, God has promised to provide. God is in control. And so we put our faith and trust in God. There's a fine line, again, between being thankful and trusting in God's blessing. 
When we put our trust in our country, a human leader, or a standard of living, we will eventually come to find that it will be much like those who are around us. That we find that when we put our trust in these things, that we wind up empty. We can never expect, though, to go to God and find emptiness. Our circumstances may feel like and sometimes be like he's not there, that he's leaving us empty. What does the Christian hold on to when the circumstances seem to contradict this? No, we hold on to this, that the Lord gives victory. He has promised to give victory to his anointed. We have King Jesus who has given victory over sin and death. Through Christ, we already have our greatest need provided and our greatest enemy defeated. We read, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we trust in? And when the things that we enjoy and we're thankful for are removed, what do we really trust in? Supremely trust in. David would have the nation of Israel, and I would say God would have us place our trust not in a nation, not in circumstances, but in the God who is in control over all of that. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for examples both here in our congregation and abroad and in our word that have lived this out. So God, I pray that you might be gentle with us because we are a people that can be weak of faith. Lord, even Peter and the disciples were told again and again, that Jesus would die, yet he would come back. And yet when he died, they were shattered. Yet Jesus was gentle. And he tells us to come because he is meek and gentle of heart and we will find rest for our souls. Lord, may we not substitute rest for our wants. As Christians, as spouses, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as parents, Lord God, may we keep the main person the main person. May we keep God as the forefront in spite of circumstances, whether they be good, whether they be bad, regardless how elections turn out, regardless what happens in 2020 or beyond. God, we know you are in control, and we thank you and we love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.